Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Sandhill cranes are some of the best known and loved birds in the United States. Their tall stature and echoing calls combined with their close association with agricultural fields makes them easy to locate and instantly recognizable, even for the novice. But there is far more to cranes than meets the eye. These magnificent birds have been part of the North American landscape for more than 9 million years. One of the secrets to their survival is a highly developed vocal and physical communication system. We'll learn a bit about that today, as well as the Sandhill Crane as metaphor. And we're uh, doing this program ahead of the Cache Valley Sandhill Crane Festival. That's happening on Friday and Saturday and features, as keynote speaker, crane expert Paul Tebble, who we welcome into the program. Paul Tebble, welcome. Thank you very much, Tom. And uh, Paul Tebble is currently Executive Director of Friends of the River, a river advocacy organization focused on protection of free-flowing rivers in California. Previously, uh, he was Manager and Director of the Lily and Annette Rowe Sanctuary, owned by the National Audubon Society in Gibbon, Nebraska. And that uh, serves as habitat protection for sandhill and whooping cranes and waterfowl and other wildlife. And so we'll learn about that as we go along as well. And uh, in the conjunction with the Cache Valley Sandhill Crane Festival, celebration of that, the Logan Library on Monday, this past Monday, featured uh, a uh, viewing, a filming, a uh, showing of the film, Mating for Life. And we have with us the filmmaker, Cindy Stilwell. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Uh, so... The, this uh, film is a, a documentary narrated by Cindy Stilwell, focusing on a personal pilgrimage to witness the annual spring migration of sandhill cranes. Serves as a metaphor for human transformation, a meditation on nature and art, posing questions about our need for both connection and solitude. Very interesting. And so let's hear the trailer, at least part of the trailer for the film. The sandhill crane is a bird species considered to be perennially monogamous, which means the crane mates for life. Humans are a species that is known to mate for life. Yet many of us do not. I haven't. What have I been doing for 40 years? What will I leave behind without a family? I'm not really a birder. It's just these facts about cranes pull me toward them. I'm not sure what I'm looking for. There's the trailer for the film, uh, Interesting Issues. We'll get into talking about that. should mention that Cindy Stilwell, uh, her work has been screened at venues worldwide, including Sundance, also MoMA, the uh, Walker Arts Center, International Film Festival of Rotterdam. And uh, she received her MFA from New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, teaches film production in the School of Film and Photography at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana. So Cindy Stilwell, I, I think uh, what drew you to uh, Cranes is, is what 
draws a lot of us to wildlife, and and that is, um, you know, wildlife as metaphor. Um, the certain facts about them. In this case, uh, cranes who tend to live, I think, twenty years and, and plus, mate for life. Yes, exactly. That captured my attention, and you're right. I noticed when I was um, starting to track down cranes and become a bit of a craniac myself that everyone I encountered pretty quickly when they when they started talking about cranes, what they knew of them, they would then compare themselves to crane behavior, whether they were mated or not. They would talk about <laughs> what they were learning about cranes in terms of their own human behavior. And that really struck me. I figured we all, a lot of us, have that in common with nature, particularly cranes. I think they strike a chord for many people. Mm. Paul Tebel, uh, coming from the point of view of a scientist, uh, I suppose on one one hand, maybe a scientist I could see maybe frowning a bit on this, or romanticizing wildlife. But on the other hand, that's that's what draws a lot of us to uh, to these animals. Right, and it's very interesting as we progress in our scientific technology, we are learning many more things about cranes and. Uh, even though Cindy is correct, cranes can mate for life, they don't always mate for life. And the real challenge has always been knowing whether or not the two cranes you are looking at are the mated pair, or if they're just maybe one of the males, male got switched by another male or the female got switched or something like that. And so as we get better with new technology, we're able to determine those things. So, Cindy, does that does that, <laughs> does that change the paradigm for you? <laughs> Maybe you knew that before about cranes. Uh, well, interestingly, I did, and uh, I should mention, people may have already figured this out when you see the movie, but Paul was the consultant on my movie. So, mm, yeah, when I was doing my research, I would send I sent him some clips, and so. Uh, I also attended some classes that Paul taught, so I did know that that it was, that, and that a lot of the stuff that I was able to access was, um, you know, in terms of my research about crane biology, crane behavior was was maybe even old school because these new technologies hadn't, you know, they're just starting to come into play. I think I'm right about that, Paul. Aren't mm-hmm. I? <laughs> oh, and but still, your premise is correct. When cranes are successfully raising young and nesting on an annual basis, they will stay together. Mm-hmm. We had a pair in, here in California that was marked uh, 26 years ago, and it was unusual because they were marked as a mated pair, so they were both given leg bands. And we saw them together as long as 24 years after they were marked. Mm. And wow. then they both kind of disappeared from the scene, which, of course, we have no idea what happened to them. Yeah. So that was uh, an affirmation that when things are going well, pairs will stay together for decades, which is quite extraordinary. That is extraordinary. And, Cindy, you point out in, in the film you're, you're going on a personal odyssey, but you're also making comment on society. So, you know, moving it to humans, half of marriages fail 
more people, especially women, are choosing not to mate for life. But you're wondering, right. you know, did I miss something? What What am I going to leave behind? Right. I think that's the question that, as, as humanity is moving forward, this is, at least in, I, I didn't do a lot of research in terms of worldwide populations. It was mostly focused on the United States, and those statistics are on the rise about people choosing not to marry at all and or, um, you know, mated pairs that break apart, divorce, or um, other widowhood or widowerhood, that kind of thing is happening but mostly what's surprising are the statistics of people choosing not to mate for life. And what does that say about our culture? And then I think, I think those, most of the um, culture and rep, cultural references around us, TV shows, movies, books, you know, are, are still based on traditional marriage, raising children, and that's how we move our species forward. Mm. So, so it's... It's like, hmm, what is, is something happening? And how do I reconcile the fact that I'm not following a path that is the traditional, most common path and actually, biologically speaking, probably the most necessary path? Where does that leave me and those like me if our culture really is shifting? What, what, what is, what is, how do we find meaning if we're not following that tradition path, traditional mm-hmm. path? We'll talk more about this as we go along. Uh, maybe for the next few minutes, let's concentrate on the on sandhill cranes themselves. Paul Tebble, uh, reading a bit from your bio, you first encountered sandhill cranes as an undergraduate student, mid seventies in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, later in Canada, and then you've of course been in Nebraska, and uh, you do a lot of work in New Mexico as well, and in, in California. What what first drew you to these to these birds? Uh, maybe first describe them. Well, they're an amazingly large, I, I like to call them charismatic megafauna. So they're one of the largest birds in North America. Not the biggest, not the biggest wingspan, but certainly one of the largest. And you hit it perfectly at the beginning when you said they like to be associated with agriculture, so they are easy to see. But um, what turned me on to cranes actually was a, a, one of these very odd undergraduate experiences. I was looking for a project to do. Went out with a um, with a Forest Service scientist and um, froze to death nearly that night because I didn't have the right equipment. And it was May in the Upper Peninsula, and I went down into the teens. And I got up the next morning with these people, and we were going out and looking for sandhill crane nests, which are in sphagnum bogs, floating mats of moss and I was walking one section they were walking another and 15 feet in front of me this four and a half foot tall crane blasted up off of a nest trumpeting in its in its um, concern over my presence and I don't think that was probably one of the most amazing experiences I'd had as as a you know as a 20 year old I'd never I, I was captivated and so I turned it into a undergraduate career and and unfortunately, not something that I've made a lot of money on in my life. I've had to go back to doing nonprofit um, management instead. But I've never lost contact with cranes because they fascinate me. No matter how much I know, I always learn something new every single year. And I've given hundreds and hundreds of programs and talked with people like Cindy. And yet I still am learning. So the 
they provide this perfect slate of um, here's how birds here's how birds act here's what they do here's what you can watch and can you interpret it and and the fact that they are so large and so easy to find means that you can actually do that learning without too much effort mm-hmm. so uh, f- four and a half feet uh, you know, tall is that Four and a half feet tall, yeah. uh, seven to eight foot wingspan, somewhere in that in that vicinity. Um, they have a larynx. The windpipe is is over four feet long, and it curls through the sternum, which is the breastbone, and that's what gives them that amazing rattling call. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, a, a very conspicuous bird. When you see them, in fact, uh, they're usually brown to or gray when people see them in the field, and they have a red head, it's bald skin on the top of their head, which mm. they communicate uh, to other cranes and other critters using the red on the top of their head. Let's, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, hear another clip from the film. We'll hear this, uh, the sound that uh, Paul's just uh, talked about. We've, I think we've all heard that, this uh, just amazing. Uh, we'll talk about the, uh, the mating ritual. There's a, there's a mating dance and, uh, and a pairing call. Um, and we'll hear what what turns a person into a craniac. That's what uh, advocates, enthusiasts for these birds are called. We're talking about sandhill cranes, some of the best-known and loved birds in the U.S. Uh, they've been part of the North American landscape for more than 9 million years, and they'll be featured, uh, learning about them, at the Cache Valley Sandhill Crane Festival. That happens on Friday and Saturday. Keynote speaker is crane expert Paul Tebble. And uh, his talk is Friday night, 7 to 9, at Willow Park Zoo Education Building. Then the, the, the uh, festival continues Saturday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Willow Park Zoo. And there are field trips on Saturday. Start at 7 a.m. You have to RSVP for that. More information on all of this at BridgerlandAudubon.org. We're also talking about a very interesting film, Using Cranes as Metaphor for, for Life, uh, Lifelong Mating and other themes. We're talking with the filmmaker, Cindy Stilwell. More following the break. This is Randy Watts bringing more to life. Advanced directives. Planning for medical decisions isn't easy, but it is the responsible, compassionate thing to do. Ask two questions. In the event you become too sick to speak for yourself, who would you like to speak for you? The second, have you spoken to that person about the things that are important to you? Know your parents' values. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for uh, being with us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our theme is Sandhill Cranes, some of the best-known and loved birds in the United States. We're learning all about them. and We're also um, taking a listen to clips from a film, an intimate documentary, narrated by Cindy Stilwell, the filmmaker. It focuses on a personal pilgrimage to witness the annual spring migration of the Sandhill Cranes, a metaphor for human transformation. Mating for Life is the name of the film. It evokes a meditation on nature and art, poses questions about our need for both connection and solitude. 
And we're talking with Paul Tebel, who is featured, uh, going to be featured in the Cache Valley Sandhill Crane Festival Friday and Saturday. Um, and it's being put on by the Bridgerland Audubon Society. Go to bridgerlandaudubon.org for information on this uh, Sandhill Crane Festival. This past Monday, in anticipation of this, Mating for Life was screened at the Logan Library. And it's uh, out there and, and available for, for people. So let's uh, hear another uh, clip from the film. This will give us uh, an idea of, uh, of what uh, Sandhill Cranes sound like. This is uh, their unison call, and, and talking about this, let's hear this from Mating for Life. A mated pair has a unique system of calling to one another known as the unison call. female holds her head at a 45-degree angle, while the male tilts his head in a full upright position. A primary part of mate selection occurs in Nebraska at this time of year, and that is the Sandhill Crane Courtship Dance. This dance has some specific moves. Horizontal head pump. Bow. Vertical leap. And vertical toss. The dance is used to attract mates. It is also thought to be a part of pair bond maintenance. So there's a clip from the film uh, Mating for Life. So uh, Paul Tebel, I should mention for, uh, you know, maybe someone would, would take this very literally um, the you know the the music was added, so the <laughs> the, cra- the cranes did not use the music, uh, but they're providing the rhythm for it for the music that was added by Cindy Stillwell. So, Paul, t- tell us a little bit about the uh, the the call and and the dance. So the the call is uh, one of the loudest uh, known calls in in the bird world. It can carry up to a mile. And it is because of the size of the larynx, the size of the voice box. But the, it, it's a, we call it a rattle, and it is one of the uh, most amazing and, and a call that people cannot uh, duplicate. Uh, a lot of people can do a duck call or a goose call, but I've never met anybody that could do a decent crane call, not even close. And you often hear them when they're flying over. You'll see these Vs of birds high, high above you, and you'll hear the call before you ever find the V. So you know that they're, they may be a mile above you, yet you are able to hear them. And I often located nests by listening for the unison call that um, Cindy just uh, played in her, in her film clip. And I would take a, a compass angle on where that was coming from because I was deep in the woods and there were filled pockets of little wetlands, and I would figure out where they were based upon where I thought I was hearing the call from, and then I would try and find the right wetland to locate a nest. 
a primitive way of finding nests, but in uh, in the deep woods is is actually pretty successful. Uh, so uh, I learned from Cindy's film, eighty percent of the world's sandhill cranes gather along the Platte River each year. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, it is truly the North American migration phenomena. It is something that should be on every person's bucket list. For example, here in California, we have about 35,000 cranes that can be found up and down the Central Valley of California in the wintertime, and then they go north to breed. Nebraska, in the springtime, and where the, the refuge that I ran had 50 to 60,000 cranes in five miles of river, where they were spending the night, so they just roost in the shallow water at night. And it is, as, as Cindy can tell you, one of the most amazing phenomena you, you can see and hear, because remember those cranes are always calling, and when 50,000 cranes go into the air at once, oh my gosh, it is amazing thing to watch. It literally vibrates the building you're in, and it's, it's, a, it's a spectacular thing to watch. Mm. Cindy, a poignant part of the film is is your reminiscences about your father. And you, you learned about this, this great gathering from your father, right? That he essentially, I guess you could say, had it on his bucket list, never never got to got to do it. So you're, I guess, doing it in his place and remembering him as you as you go there. That's right. That's exactly right. It was I would say it was on his bucket list because he told me about it, knew about it, and had intended to go. I uh, I grew up in East Tennessee, and they were doing a reintroduction of cranes in that area, which I think has since grown quite large, but he never made it to the Platte River. And so, yeah, my, my journey to see the cranes in Nebraska was definitely um, sort of sort of his journey by proxy, kind of. I, I, I never forgot it when he described it which, of course, he would have just read about it and heard about it from others. But then I decided I wanted to go see that. By the and way, it was, like Paul yeah. said, it was, it was one of the most profound things I have ever experienced. I'm, I, I was literally blown away hmm. when I saw it. Now, how do, you, how do you, I guess you can experience this in many different ways. You could just go out there, you know, with your camera or whatever. I, in the film, I saw a gentleman with a microphone he, he collecting sound, so that's one way you could do it. Um, but uh, you, Or you could be in a blind, I guess. Yes, they have. At the Rose Sanctuary, they have, they have viewing blinds, so they ha- and they have journeys you can, so you can go to the fly-in or the fly-out, which is in the early morning or the, at dusk. And uh, you have to sign up for those during the the season. And then also they have these blinds that you can, really rustic blinds, which is also in the film, uh, you can spend the night in. And those those blinds that you get, they're right on the Platte River, but they start reserving those spots for those blinds um, at the first of the year. <laughs> mm-hmm. They book up so quickly, so you have to reserve your night in the blind if you want to do that and and it's amazing mm. absolutely amazing that's what gave they they told me that i would i would end up seeing cranes right in front of my blind i was not sure these are these volunteers take you out there and then and then you can't leave the blind because they don't want you to spook the birds or keep them from the prime habitat which is where this, these blinds are located 
just was all new to me. I had no idea. I mean, I was. It was clear to me once I started researching it and getting into it that there were people that do this every year, particularly uh, nature photographers, nature buffs, craniacs that were, you know, booking these blinds up months in advance. The moment they could, they were on the phone or on the email trying to get those blinds booked. And this fascinated me that people were that, you know, the cranes themselves and the fact you could do it, which I knew I had to experience, but also that people were that connected to this bird and wanted to experience as close, you know, close proximity to them. Mm-hmm. He would do that. And it's not particularly pleasant in those blinds. Paul's nose probably there's no facilities and there's no heat you know there's no water you got to carry everything in and then you're basically locked in for from like five in the evening till i don't know mid-morning the next day yeah you have to have to have to love it so paul uh, there are a lot of craniacs and what what uh, i'm curious what uh, you you've entered you interact with a lot of uh, a lot of craniacs uh what what turns someone into a craniac Oh, good question. So um, they are not necessarily all bird watchers. Um, bird watchers are, of course, an eclectic group amongst ourselves. I guess you would say. You know, we we tend to go out and and experience the birds in our area, or we go to special places to see them. But craniacs, I guess you would call them a subsection that not necess- of of bird watchers, but not necessarily bird watchers. They're people who love the spectacle and are not all that excited about seeing numerous species and and keeping lists or anything else. They just go out to enjoy the view of birds, in this case cranes, nearby. And they've also learned that the things that Cindy showed in her film, the dancing, the the fighting, all of the antics that these cranes do are readily seen if you just take the time to go out and watch them. And you get hooked. Mm. You get hooked because you want to go out and, and see this. And oftentimes, cranes are only in an area for a short period of time on the plat. They're only there for about six weeks. Um, an individual pair of cranes probably only for three weeks itself, but the whole phenomenon lasts six weeks. And then they're going to continue north to, to breed, and then they're gone. Mm. So it's it's kind of a, it's a fun way to get out and be out in nature and enjoy the beauty of the spring and see birds put on a show that you can't see anywhere else in the world. If you just joined us, we're talking about sandhill cranes, some of the best known and loved birds in the U.S. They're they're ancient. They've been in the North American landscape for more than 9 million years. They're big. That's what Paul is telling us. You can, you can observe them uh, you know, up close in a matter of speaking without having to get too close. And uh, we've been talking about their highly developed vocal and physical communication system as well. Uh, Sandhill cranes also serve as a metaphor in a, a film, very interesting documentary called Mating for Life, uh, narrated by Cindy Stilwell, the uh, filmmaker, and uh, treating issues of nature and art, our need for connection and solitude, metaphor for human trans- transformation. That film was shown at the Logan Library uh, earlier this week on Monday ahead of the Cache Valley Sandhill Crane Festival, which is happening on Friday and Saturday, featuring keynote speaker uh, Paul Tebel 
And so Friday, 7 to 9 at the Willow Park Zoo Education Building, then Saturday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Willow Park Zoo. And field trips available for you Saturday morning starting at 7 a.m. Just go to bridgerlandaudubon.org for more information. So, uh, Paul Tebble, some interesting facts I want to get out there uh, learned from the film. Um, Cranes... Unlike perching birds, don't have the, I guess the claws to perch in trees, so they, they they go to water to to find protection, and um, there something about their legs they're able to control the blood flow so that they their <laughs> legs don't freeze to death uh, standing in that uh, cool water. Well, that's right. You'll see them on the Platte River uh, in March which is a pretty cold spot, and they're standing out in the freezing cold water. Now, we would think that's a ridiculous place to be. But uh, when you think about it, the water temperature is going to be 32 degrees, and the air temperature around us may be 10 or 5 degrees, and that would be much colder for them. So they can comfortably stand in the shallow water, and they do it by basically the warm blood going down their leg transfers heat to the cold blood coming back up. Um, uh, there's a there's a scientific name for that, which I've of course forgotten this morning. But um, it it does a very good job of of keeping those feet um, fine. But there's not much to them anyway. They have basically bone, skin, and a little bit of ligament, and that's about it. They don't have a, a lot of nerves in their feet, so they don't feel the cold like we do. Hmm. Uh, so you work with, uh, or, or you observe these these uh, big and magnificent animals, uh, have observed them in various places. Uh, tell me about New Mexico. You, you go there and do workshops in New Mexico, I think, regularly. So there's different places to watch cranes, and, and Utah is where the cranes breed, um, and they'll migrate through a little bit in the fall. And so that's a that, but you have to work pretty hard to find cranes. You have to know approximately where they're going to be. That one of the two places, obviously in the Platte in the spring, you can find cranes, thousands of cranes easily. But New Mexico, southern New Mexico, uh, is one of the favorite places for cranes to spend the winter, and they find shallow spots on the Rio Grande, and that. Feds have provided a wonderful refuge down there called Bosque del Apache. And for some reason of which I can give you no logical explanation, the cranes allow you to easily get close to them. So there's roads that go around the refuge and the cranes are out in the fields. And you can literally stand at your car and watch cranes that are 30 feet. 60 feet away from you, uh, which is extraordinary. In Nebraska, if you were to do that, the cranes would be long gone. They would fly away because they're used to being hunted, and they're very wary. But for some reason in, in New Mexico, they allow you to to watch them, and they go about their ways, and so you get to observe them in a, in a remarkable setting. And uh, southern, southern New Mexico in November is an absolutely gorgeous place to, to visit with all the brown colors. So the backdrop of cranes and snow geese and brown colors makes it quite a quite an amazing place to be. What about uh, what about Utah? Uh, so will people be able to see some cranes when they go on that field trip with you if they want on on Saturday morning at seven? Oh, we will definitely find cranes. Now this is this is the time when the paired cranes have very small young. Uh, they're probably born right around June first. 
and uh, so the cranes, cranes are going to be highly protective, and they're going to keep those youngsters secreted away. And so they'll be tough to find, but we'll see them. Uh, that's one of the nice things about a four-foot-tall bird. You have a pretty good chance of seeing it. But this brings about a, a, something that's really important to understand about cranes. And you mentioned the fact that they don't have that claw on the back of their feet, so they cannot land in a tree. So if you're a four-foot-tall bird and you can be in really three places, shallow water, because you can't swim, you can only walk in water, um, you can be on the ground or you can be in the air. And if you're going to try and successfully raise young birds and you can only be in one of those three places, you're going to have to be extraordinary parents. And that's what cranes are. Mm. They take uh, amazing care of their young kids. We call them colts, just like the horses. Colts. And oh. they protect those youngsters for two and a half months until they learn to fly. So those those young cranes are very vulnerable for that two and a half months, and the adults will will drive away a coyote or a person, whoever happens to get close, and try and draw them away, drive them away, whatever they need to do to protect their young. And um, that's one of the things that attracts me to cranes is their their grasp of family, because like Cindy said in her in her piece, they they mate for life as long as they're successful and they take care of their kids extraordinarily well and maybe like cindy hypothesizes maybe we all dream to be like cranes and and to be that dedicated to our mates and just naturally do that let's take another break when we come back more from paul tebel who's a crane expert and uh, cindy stillwell who is a filmmaker her, her film mating for life was shown at the uh, logan a library on Monday ahead of the Cache Valley Sandhill Crane Festival. And that's happening on Friday and Saturday, featuring keynote speaker Paul Tebel. More information on that and how you can get involved with it at bridgerlandaudubon.org. More following the break. What was the happiest moment in your life and why? How do you want to be remembered? Has your life been different than what you might have imagined? What are your dreams for me? What questions have you always wanted to ask? I'm Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. Record a conversation with someone you love when our mobile recording booth comes to town. Join us in July at the Uinta County Library in Vernal. Utah Public Radio will begin taking reservations on June 18th. Details at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment of the program today. We're talking about sandhill cranes. They've been around for 9 million years. I've been learning one of the reasons why just at the end of the last segment. Um, and they're very recognizable. You can hear their calls from a long way away. And a lot of people are fascinated by these uh, by these birds. And the, the people who are very fascinated by the birds, follow them around, are called craniacs. So all craniacs and others are invited to the Cache Valley Sandhill Crane Festival. That's on Friday and Saturday uh, at the Willow Park Zoo. And uh, Paul Tebel is the keynote speaker Friday night. And then you can go out on a field trip with him 7 a.m. on Saturday. And the uh, festival continues until 3 p.m. on Saturday back at the uh, zoo. Mating for Life, a film uh, which uses the uh, sandhill cranes as a metaphor for uh, for our lives, for solitude, for mating, for uh, a lot of things, uh, was shown at the Logan Library on Monday. We have with us the filmmaker, uh, Cindy Stilwell, and we have a crane expert, Paul Tebel, with us. 
Uh, so let's hear another clip from the the film. Um, this one, uh, this one uh, talks about solitude versus, uh, I guess, companionship. It's uh, Cindy Stillwell uh, sitting in a blind here, uh, I guess, waiting for the cranes to come. I believe this is in Nebraska. Let's hear this. I am led to a plywood bird blind built on the river's edge. I must enter well before dusk. I'm not to leave until the next morning when someone from the bird sanctuary will come to get me. I must use no lights and make no loud sounds. Anything that might disrupt the cranes is forbidden. If I'm lucky, the volunteer tells me, they will gather on the river in front of my blind. I must wait and keep warm. The brochure says there is room for two in the blind. I am only one. Being a single doesn't really make this place spacious. I have all my gear. And if someone were here with me, I would be compelled to talk. Alone in about three hours till dusk, I think of other bird blinds on the river. Is anyone else alone and they're blind? Eventually, my mind empties. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite poignant. And, and I was, in my mind, I was flashing on, you know, whole cities. Are we alone in our houses? You know, the blind is a metaphor for that. So I want, maybe I could have you talk about, there's another part in the film where you talk about these themes as well, companionship, uh, solitude. Uh, you have this interesting footage years ago shot by your father. Uh, it's a vacation. Kids, I, I assume you were part of the kids frolicking, I think, in, on the beach. But it's shot through the motel window. And you right. and you wonder why you know why isn't Dad with us? Right, exactly. <laughs> and this is, uh, I think, sort of gets to the more philosophical leanings of the film as it started to come together, and what all the information, biological information, behavioral information about the cranes started to lead me to as I started contemplating this idea of. I liked your word, companionship versus solitude, moving through life. And it's funny, that clip with my uh, my dad's Super 8 footage of his family down on the beach, and you're right, I was one of the kids running around. Um, sort, of, sort of through childhood, I spent my days wondering, you know, why is dad isolating himself? Why... You know, and took it in this heavy way that it was some disappointment he might have had with his family, which I think is normal for kids to wonder about with remote fathers or absent mothers, remote parents. But then also, as I got as I've gotten older, I'm like, you know, he's probably just taking a nap. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to be said for uh, people, even within a partnership of whatever kind, needing 
time alone. I think that both are true for human beings, to need companionship and need solitude. Mm -hmm. And how we choose to um, make that happen for ourselves ends up shaping our lives. I think I think it's a it's a myth to think that that uh, if you are in a marriage, a happy marriage or a happy partnership means you're together all the time. I, maybe that just depends on the personality type, but I think most humans need solitude as much as they need companionship. Mm-hmm. And that footage sort of represented that in the film, where I'm contemplating: was it this? Was was my you know this? It was this deep, troubling thing with my dad, or was it? actually just representative of his and everyone else's need for solitude as a human being. Paul Tebold, the the unison call that we heard earlier um, uh, is part of pair bond maintenance, as we call it. We, you know, very unromantically, that's what we call it in, I guess, the animal world. <laughs> uh, but as you say, if uh, sandhill cranes are successful in mating, they're very successful, and they're very successful raising their young. Uh, I got it's almost an irresistible urge, which we're not resisting here to to transfer lessons over to us. So cranes will stay together as a family for for well, the, of course, the parents are together as long as they're successful breeding, but they'll have the kids with them throughout the winter and often until they return to their breeding ground the next spring, and then they move the kids on and get ready to breed again. That's pretty extraordinary in the bird world. In most cases, once birds fledge, they move away from their parents. But in cranes, they stay together as a family. And I have watched parents, the, the, the mated pair, dancing in November with their kids around them, and they're... You could say that dance is for pair bonding. You could also say, as we all like to be a little anthropomorphic, is is that they're just doing it because they like to dance, and they like to dance with their mate. We, of course, will have no idea why they're really dancing, but it's an extraordinary thing to see happen when it has no biological mating significance behind it. You know, maybe it is just pair bond affirmation. We're not really sure, but... um, that's something, that's, those are some of the things that makes cranes so extraordinary is that there's so much focus on the family and that the bond between the parents is, is, is kept alive 12 months out of the year. Um, oftentimes birds that even if they travel together as a mated pair don't show it except during the, very, during the breeding seasons, and not so for cranes. I wonder, uh, Paul Tebel, uh, as I was thinking about, uh, you know, in preparing for the conversation today, I was thinking some animals just excite our imagination, others not as much. You know, of course, your mileage may vary, individual to individual. So wolves, for example, just seem to excite our imagination. Cranes, apparently, another another such animal. I wonder why. So there are 15 species of cranes in the world, and every single one of them is beloved by the local people. Um, to them, the cranes in their, their voices, their dancing, their antics, uh, the people have, uh, especially the people in Asia and India, um, Japan, they love their cranes, and they 
they create art around them and a whole a whole part of their culture revolves around these birds and and to some degree we do that here in the United States around cranes just because they I don't know maybe they answer questions for us like Cindy's posed in her film maybe they they just help us better understand um, birds because they're so easy to see, but they also help us better understand ourselves. I've always enjoyed calling them people with wings mm -hmm. because so much of what they do is human-like. Or I always like to reverse it since they've been around for nine million years. Many of the things that humans do is crane-like. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, let's hear another clip from the film. We're, we're nearing the end of our time together. We want to hear the this is from the film, the idea of the Platte River being a, a special or, or sacred place. Unlike perching birds, the sandhill crane is not equipped with clawed feet that can grip tree branches. They surround themselves with water each night, using it like a protective moat. The Platte River can be icy at this time of year, and the cranes have the ability to reduce blood flow to their lower legs so they can withstand the extreme cold water temperature. This river, wide and shallow, and these birds seem to have co-evolved. They fit so perfectly together. A large number of sandhills will winter in the Rio Grande Valley of New Mexico at the Bosque del Apache Wildlife Refuge. Even though it would be more direct to fly along the western front of the Rocky Mountains into Canada, the lesser sandhills do not. They fly east to the Platte River Gathering. So these cranes fly approximately 1,000 miles out of their way. I relate to this. It's not about efficiency or what is smart. In a non-science way, it suggests that the Platte River is sacred to these cranes. So here are some of the you know the amazing facts about the about the cranes. Um, that is just amazing that the, the lesser sandhill cranes will go way out of their way to, to join this huge gathering in Nebraska. Cindy Stillwell, uh, just a couple of minutes uh, left. I wanted to ask you about sacred places. You talk about this, and on your journey to Nebraska, you visit some sacred places, at least to you. What and I think we all we have places that are sacred to us. What what is that feeling? Yeah, it's a good question. What is that feeling? And is it something like I wonder about in the film? Does it does it make it sacred when you're willing to go out of your way for it? <laughs> Stop what you're doing, don't be efficient, et cetera. And uh, oh, there's, there's other reasons for taking certain journeys in life than maximizing this or that, our various needs. And I think that is maybe a criteria for something and that makes it a sacred place. Mm. And and I I wonder if there would be crane biologists, Paul included, cringing at my notion that these birds might find this space sacred. But in some ways, is it, is it possible if we use human terminology on what they're doing? That's kind of the definition of sacred. We go out of our way for it. It doesn't necessarily benefit us, or at least we might not 
see explicitly how it benefits us to go out of our way to visit or do something in a particular place. That me, makes it sacred. Let me throw that the Cindy's question over to you, Paul. Um, so, yeah, maybe going a little too far to, to to imagine that these birds find these places sacred in the term that we mean it. But what you know, maybe you could respond to that. It's a great question. Here's what we understand. Um, Sandhill cranes, of course, need very shallow water to be able to roost. And they, in, in the wintertime, they've depleted all of the food down in the wintering areas, and they're starting to move north to, find, to get to their breeding grounds. And they needed places that they could safely spend the night, and so they found the Platte River. And it, it, um, it was in, in probably still now, but at least back when I started working on it 40 years ago, we always saw it in March of the Platte and that part of Nebraska as the edge of winter. If cranes were to go further north, everything would still be frozen and covered with too deep of snow, and they wouldn't find any food. So by getting to the Platte, um, they would be able to uh, uh, they would be able to find a safe place to roost, and they would be able to find some food, and that was really important. So it was the edge of winter. We don't fully understand why every crane or almost every crane goes to those locations but they do that and um, they have probably been doing it for as long as the platte's been around which is about thirty thousand years Um, before that of course we have no idea how their migration patterns have shifted and it, it but that's that's from a scientific standpoint that's the best answer we have for the importance and and what makes that place sacred to cranes by the way, we, we should not leave uh, a conversation on cranes. We've been focusing on sandhill cranes, but uh, one of the crane species is, I don't know if you'd use the word threatened, endangered. We're talking about whooping cranes. Whooping cranes are still endangered, uh, very much so, but doing better. Oh, good. Uh, at one point, we had only 16 whooping cranes in North America, including including wow. ones who were... Um, in captivity, and that was back in the 50s, and that that number has now risen into the 400s, or uh, and there's even more um, captive bred cranes that are trying to pull the population back together. So they've made a remarkable recovery thanks to human intervention. Um, but the, talk about a gorgeous and amazing bird to see. You don't see the numbers, but a five-foot-tall crane. Um, completely white with a red head and an amazing call. They are a gorgeous, gorgeous bird, but you have to work very hard to see them. Mm. What what more needs to be done to help the whooping crane? It's a matter of habitat uh, protection than uh, more than anything else. Um, their wintering habitat down in Texas, they unfortunately like very specific things to eat in the winter, blue crab, under drought conditions or pollution conditions, sometimes we lose we lose the blue crowd, the blue um, crab populations, and that is detrimental to the to the whooping crane survival on the wintering ground. And then on their um, mating ground, one of the biggest problems is predators. Uh, when you're a five foot tall white bird and you're protecting your youngster, you're shouting out to any predators, hey. Look at me, I'm a five-foot-tall white bird, and there's a little bird next to me. Come and get me, or come and get it. And so oftentimes bobcats will just 
decimate the the um, breeding population of whooping cranes, even though it's in a very, very secluded area of the Northwest Territories in Alberta in Canada. So it's 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 a real challenge for biologists to try and save this species, and and I but I think we're going to successfully do it. And final question to you, uh, Cindy Stillwell. This film is about cranes, but it's also about us, and it's about you, and you're going on your personal journey. A metamorphosis, what you call it. Where where have you ended up? <laughs> <laughs> Deep, deeper into my 40s. No, I think I, I think film is about uh, that sort of change that happens to us. And, and at some point in our middle of our lives, we'll begin to see that, that there will be an end. <laughs> and uh, what 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 are we going to do to give ourselves meaning? And I think that film did help me in a lot of ways reconcile that um, okay, the passing on of offspring will not be what brings me my personal meaning. It will be more through the making of art, including films, and experiencing things like sandhill cranes and whooping cranes, by the way. Mm. That's on my bucket list. I have yet to see one in my life. So, that, But the idea that that's enough, that you, okay, if you don't mate for life and have children of traditional past, and perhaps even if you do, we did. We end up having to dig kind of deep, and perhaps things we make and put into the world, whether it be children or art or films or music, whatever it is, that that's how we find meaning. And I guess, I guess that coming to terms with that is where that film has brought me. <laughs> and that's a good place to end it. We're out of time. We've been talking with Paul Tebel, a crane expert. Uh, he is executive director of Friends of the River, River Advocacy Organization, focused on protection of free-flowing rivers in uh, California. And he'll be the keynote speaker at the Cache Valley Sandhill Crane Festival. That's happening on Friday and Saturday at the Willow Park Zoo Education Building, event on Friday 7 to 9, and then Saturday 10 to 3 at the Willow Park Zoo. There's a field trip available for you uh, starting at 7 a.m. need RSVP for that. More information on all of this, bridgerlandaudubon.org. And Cindy Stillwell, her film Mating for Life was shown Monday at the Logan Library in anticipation of the Sandhill Crane Festival. And uh, that is uh, out and, and available. Uh, so we appreciate you you both uh, joining us. Paul Tebble, thanks so much. Uh, you're welcome, and it was great to be working with Cindy again. S- Cindy uh, Stillwell, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was wonderful to be here, and, and great to hear you again, Paul. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.